0: To the aftershock. My name is Colinette Nyer. I'm here with you today with Jamin Moore uh, and Anay Patel. Who you don't always really see in front of the camera so much, but he is actually the man who founded Quake's Epicenter and remains our publisher to this day. Welcome, gentlemen. Um, good what to be I, here.
1: Yeah, great to be here.
0: That you know, this is this is obviously. Uh, well, actually, I'll just say this off the top. Jamin and I have been re- doing a lot of reporting this week about you know what what was going on in the club, and and once it became very clear that uh, the two sides were kind of headed in opposite directions, and we've kind of seen this trajectory for a very long time. Um, but I just wanted to say one thing, which is when we talked to our sources, and Jamin, you can correct me if you had any different experience of this. A very large number of them, even if they were totally of the opinion that I was, which was that you know it was time to move on most of them were unbelievably complimentary of Matias Almeida. You know, most of them had a lot of really good things to say about him as a human being, as a man. Um, and, and actually kind of, they had more of a sense of regret uh, that it didn't work out on a tactical level. Um, whereas, you know, for people like me in the commentariat class, you know, I was stridently, you know, critical of his tactics. A lot of the people inside the club, you know, are, are sad to see him go. Um, and I think that that's kind of an important kind of underpinning to have here is that this is a man that gave, you know, three and a half years of his life here. And he really did give everything to this club, uh, whether or not it worked out. Um, So, Jamin, just, I wanted to hear, you know, if you had anything different in your sourcing here, but just to establish that, and then Anae will get you next.
2: No, and and look, you know, I think, you know, Colin and I have both been in kind of the same place for quite some time that this wasn't working and that there needed to be some changes. Um, But it was never because Almeida, the person you know, had given up on the club. And I know that sometimes from the media perspective, um, when he's talking to these radio shows in Argentina, or even the other day and ESPN Mexico, there's this, there's kind of sense that he doesn't want to be here. And I actually always got information from people who were closer to him and closer to the club that that was never actually true. That was a narrative, but it was never actually true. He always wanted to be here. He wanted it to work here. He and his family loved being in San Jose, and he wanted to be here longer. And when he said, I want 10 more years, he actually meant it. And so, you know, despite everything, you know, that tactically I disagree with Matias Almeida on, and I've been very profuse on this show about that. The thing that I want to make very clear is that I never bought into the narrative that he didn't want to be here and didn't want this to work. And I never bought into the narrative that, you know, he started the season not wanting to be here. He, did he have tough days on the job like the rest of us? Absolutely. Did it, did he at times get so discouraged by the results that he may have like said, I should resign and maybe even said that out loud to players or other people? Absolutely. Do people probably have to convince him when he had those down moments that, no, you should stick this out. You should stay. You should make this work. Absolutely. I believe all those things. I don't think anyone's been lying to the public here. I want to just make that really clear. I do think it was always about trying to find a way to make it work, including this season. And it just became obvious after six games that this club and the direction it's going in and the direction he was trying to take this team in, they were just at loggerheads with each other and it was not going to resolve itself.
0: Um, So, and I I actually, you know, we can zoom out here. I mean, obviously I want to hear what you think about this exact moment where uh, Matthias is moving on, but I'm actually curious if you could just start at the beginning, since we rarely put a microphone in front of you, start at the beginning of that entire experience of like, from the moment we found out, He was going to be San Jose's coach in late 2018, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, through the current day. Just kind of give us your impressions of that experience as a fan, as a media uh, member who's covering the club.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the three of us are are mostly on the same page there. Uh, I remember you published that article, Colin, when when Matias was first announced. And I think Joel Soria published a similar article with a similar tone in that this, you know, signing of Matias Almeida is such a big statement for the club and for the league. Um, it's something that San Jose uh, showed, you know, a, a massive amount of ambition in doing, um, and, and for that, you know, the ownership deserves a lot of credit. The front office deserves, deserves a lot of credit. Um, but what kind of followed was perhaps, you know, some disconnect uh, in terms of what we expected from ownership, from the staff. Um, it obviously didn't go as planned. Uh, there were a lot of ups and downs. I think one of the kind of key questions that i i think a lot of us have is like what what was the amount of spending that Matias was promised when he was brought in you know was was andy rios and carlos fiero his number one number two guys i don't know it's hard to say there were a lot of rumors you know miguel Ayun and uh guys like alan Polito so there's always going to be that big question mark and and like you guys mentioned um we're kind of left uh with that question mark uh what would it have been like if we had spent um if we had kind of given Matias exactly what he wanted, um, that's one hand. And on the other hand, what we've seen very obviously with other MLS clubs, and what you've pointed out, Colin and Jamin as well, is using you know the most simple of analytics measures: expected goals, expected goal differential. Uh, it wasn't working in San Jose. It wasn't working as as it is. And the other point that you know Colin was was uh, bringing up recently. Was that you don't need to spend, you don't need to spend nine million dollars on Alan Polito to win an MLS. Um, so maybe, you know, that disconnect uh, just wasn't really ever gonna work for us. Um, and I think it, it, it's tough, you know. There were a lot of ups and downs during this time. There was a lot of highs, the MLS is back tournament, that Shea Salinas goal. I don't think any of us are gonna ever forget that. All of us stuck at home and and being able to watch that uh, great moment of joy or a lot of other moments as well later in that season uh, that LAFC win when the team was like on the brink of collapse. And then suddenly they go on this insane run Um, going back to 2019 that, that summer where they were probably the best team in the league right next to LAFC. Uh, They had the best record between April and September when it all kind of fell apart uh, and, and they couldn't, you know, bag a goal at the end of the season. But yeah, it's, it's been ups and downs, but you know, it's, Disappointing to see it didn't work, um, but uh, you know, there's a lot of positives I think that we're going to take from it, and we're going to talk about kind of his, his impact on on the club and the academy and other areas of the club as well. Yeah,
0: and and I should you know just because both of you mentioned this uh, kind of uh, concept of it, it felt like square peg round hole in so many different ways uh, for the club. Um, the club historically obviously had stuck within the league with its coaching tree, very conservative in many ways, you know, people who were kind of already within the American system. Um, obviously they did not play Almeida tactics before he got here. Personality wise, the coaches that preceded him were much more low key and the, the kinds of players he wanted and the kinds of players he expected. All of these levels are things that were new for the club. And I think that's why we were all excited. And by the way, as the Nate points out, and those first two seasons, there was there were moments of like real, thrilling, joyful football. Um, and even some of the losing was pleasurable in a way that it wasn't, and, you know, under Kinnear and Yallop and Mark Watson. Um, so, you know, th- there, that's, you know, the, the upside was always tantalizing. And I think that's why yeah, for, if anyone's tuning in this broadcast who's not a regular Quakes fan, uh, this is about as polarizing of an issue as you're ever going to see in a sports club. Uh, what, you know, what people thought about Almeida. And, you know, the people like me who were super against him, at least going forward at a certain point, I think by the end of 2020, I'd kind of checked out on him being the long term answer uh, because, you know, I view the game in a certain way. And I thought that the clubs, the ability of the club to match his needs was a much too, uh, it was a too long of a bridge to cross uh, rather than him kind of adapting to the club, which we knew was never going to happen. So once I kind of decided that they were unbridgeable, fair enough, but, there's a huge portion of our fan base that was tantalized by that exciting element. Uh, And quite frankly, the fact that it was the first Latino coach for the Quakes, the first coach who was speaking in Spanish at his press conferences, allowed him to connect with a segment of the fan base that rightly felt underappreciated going before that. So it was a super polarizing issue from the beginning. Um, We finally have come to a head where they've decided to split ways uh, Jamin Moore, uh, what's turn? cause we actually are, I think we're only going to have you for a little bit of the show. Uh, can you at least give us idea of, obviously we've had a new staff announced, um, anything you know about that? If there's anything that we know about how Quakes 2 is going to be handled going forward, a permanent coach, and in those kind of fact reporting elements? If, uh, if you give us the latest update.
2: Yeah, we got to talk with, uh, Chris Leach in the press conference and representing Quakes at the center in that was Alex Morgan and Robert Jonas as well. So we have a, a good sense on many things. The Quakes 2, that one's been punted a little bit. So it, uh, I asked uh, after the press conference for an update on Quakes 2, and it turns out that, uh, you know, as of right now, no coach has been named. So hopefully we'll get to an answer on that. But regarding everything else, you know, we know that obviously Alex Cavallo is going to be the interim head coach. We know that uh, also he's going to be joined by Steve Ralston, who's a great practice-type guy, someone who uh, really kind of keeps things moving and keeps the players engaged. Chris Wondolowski, who clearly is there to really kind of help with the player relationship side of things. And, uh, and also uh, Luciano, forgot his last name all of a sudden off the top of my head, uh, but his assistant at Quakes 2 is also going to be uh, joining the staff as well. So, you know, it's going to be a fairly full staff. I think there's kind of a question on what's going on with the goalkeeper, Um, uh, portion of the equation. Not sure we have a clear answer on that yet, but uh, we're getting closer to getting some of these answers. In terms of timeline, Leach didn't want to give one today. He, in effect, said that uh, he wanted to take the time to make the right choice rather than a fast track situation. Now, there's plenty of names that have been thrown out there. Some of them, I think, more credible than others. And Colin, you you and I know all the names, uh, and I'm sure you're going to get into some of that tonight. But for me, um, you know, it was, I think he wants to really kind of see what does Cavelo and this group of interim assistants do together and how close can they get this thing to getting back on track. And if we're talking a team that can still make the playoffs, I get the feeling they're going to be given a lot of rope to be able to be successful and perhaps see out the entire season if it goes well. And if it doesn't, he's starting that coaching search now and can kind of pull the trigger when he needs to. Uh, when he knows who that person is and if they're available this season to be able to bring them in right away.
0: And apologies for any background noise you're hearing.
1: <laughs> Thank you. are muted, Colin.
0: My apologies. Bad tech for me here. Um, so, uh, Jamin, you can drop off whenever uh, you need to. And by the way, for the audience here today, uh, when he drops off, it's going to be a bit of a conversation between me and Anae. But it's also something we would love to highlight. Your comments kind of address them uh, specifically as they go from here. Uh, that is uh, Luciano Fusco. Thank you to the people in the chat who are flagging that. Um, I I think that there's a lot to talk about uh, for this int- or for the prospective uh, coaching search. But I will say for the interim uh, element, you know, honestly. The interim coaches are more of a matter of convenience uh, and, and what can fit in in that given moment than they are necessarily reflective of long term planning. And that's not to say that the club doesn't like Alex Cavill. They actually, I think he's very highly regarded. And, and hey, I'm going to put that to you in a second. Um, yeah. but you know, th- this is, this was much more about making sure that they had, uh, somebody who could credibly put, be on the touchline for this Tuesday, uh, where they play the U S open cup, uh, and then the, the subsequent Saturdays. Uh, so I, I, think that perhaps there was a little bit too much focus put on exactly how that interim staff is going to shake out, which is very clearly just trying to write the ship and steady the ship. Uh, the one thing I did notice, however, was in Chris Leach's press conference. Uh, he, he was asked about a change in tactics of whether that was possible. And I, I, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm going to do my best to pull it up in front of me right now, but He more or less, said, yeah, we're going to see some, you know, very, we're going to see some clear changes immediately, uh, which I took to mean that he was, you know, of the opinion and the front office is of the opinion that the tactics that were going on before weren't good enough, weren't what they wanted. So, and a. Patel, if I could put it to you, uh, first of all, what do we know about Alex Covello, you know, a, a, the experience, anything you've heard from people in the club, and how do you think that they're going to change the tactics or what kind of approach do you see going forward, at least for these next couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, Alex Covello, he's been uh, around the club, I think, since Jesse Fiornelli joined. Uh, he was brought in as kind of director of methodology which is kind of more of a a broader role uh, shaping the kind of future trajectory of the Academy um, was probably an integral part of that role. And looking back uh, on when that started, I think, and looking to the point where the Academy is now, you could probably look at that and say, Hey, he's done some really good work with his Academy. Um, I think there's been a lot of good chat about these Academy prospects lately with the GA cup going on. Uh, I saw a tweet the other day from someone saying that, Hey, you know, we, talk about FC Dallas's Academy and Philadelphia union's Academy, but Hey, the, the San Jose earthquakes Academy belongs in that same breath as well. So I think uh, he's done some great work there. And in that sense, he's obviously very well regarded around the club. Um, in terms of previous experience, he's got some coaching experiences in Europe as well. UEFA uh, license. Uh, fun fact that a lot of people might not know was actually, he played in the Barcelona Academy, La Maiza, with uh, Xavi Hernandez at the same time. Um, so, He's got that playing experience as well. He's, he's got some uh, serious experience in terms of that and some serious inroads within the club. So like you mentioned, Colin, convenience is important. You want to have a guy that can step in uh, and do a solid job. And I think between him, uh, Fusco, Ralston, and Wando, you've got four guys that are going to immediately be able to make an impact in that sense. Uh, in terms of kind of tactics and, and what we're going to see exactly from uh, the first team here, I think we we've gotten a little chance to see Quakes 2 play a little bit and I feel like the the reviews for the way that Quakes 2 have been playing from the fans have been overwhelmingly positive. So still kind of an attacking sense of football. We're not uh, lining up in two lines of four with two strikers or anything, but um, it's it's it's, you know, the jury's still out in, in terms of what exactly we're going to see in terms of tactics. But overall, I think, you know, Quakes fans should feel pretty good about uh Cavello being in this role. And, and overall, this staff is looking pretty complete for an interim staff, at least. Yeah. Well,
0: so, yeah, two things I would note about Covello uh, before we move on to anything else is, first of all, if you're watching those Quakes 2 matches, um, it, it seems like a fairly modern, progressive fort the back system. Uh, and it includes some, you know, I would say, some fairly exotic wrinkles there. You know, C.J. Gray is playing a, as a left back, but he mostly plays inverted. I.e., he's he, when, when he's stepping up, he's actually stepping up into the middle of the field, as kind of a hold where we would expect a holding midfielder to sit, rather than bombing down the wing. Um, it's actually somewhat similar to the Nick Lima role under Burr those first couple games he had with them. So this is, this is a coach who, you know, he's a cerebral guy and everything we've heard from inside the club, his reputation over the last five years is he's a very bright soccer mind. Um, So, you know, doesn't have a long track record of experience coaching at the first team level at a particular senior level. um, But he has a lot of credibility as a tactician and and as a thinker. So, the, the thing to keep in mind, then, and the other thing I noticed is, look, you have club legend uh, in Chris Wondolowski, longtime club assistant, Steve Ralston, guys who have a ton of credibility in the club, and then with the players who are on the field. Covello may not have that as much with the first team. And so it's in some ways kind of interesting to me that they wanted to bolster him, but they, you know, they actually preferred him to a Steve Ralston, for example. So I think it shows that he's highly thought of within the club. Um, I, you know, I don't think he's the club's long-term plan. I don't think their plan is put him in here and he'll win the permanent job and then we'll be good. I think that their plan is we think he's a really bright guy. He'll be great for now. And if he shows himself to be a real uh, excellent leader right away, great and if not you know we'll just kind of continue with our existing process um okay so comments uh, coming in here um I, I do want to kind of get to to one element uh that we we hear a lot about which is about the the players that are being brought in um the players that were brought in the early part of matias's tenure uh under jesse actually in some ways there's kind of three phases here there's jesse furinelli before matias almeida There is Jesse Fiorinelli during Matias Almeida. And then there's these kind of last eight months or so that are the Chris Leak show. Um, They're very distinct models of recruitment. We saw kind of like fairly different looks from the three of them. The first two, both were not successful. Like, I think we can all agree on that. Um, The question is, will this one be successful? Uh, And this one, by the way, does include people like Francisco Calvo came in under a leech. Uh, And one thing I should note uh, through this entire period of time is you have those three distinct phases. Matias Almeida may well have requested players. Uh, I I think it's overblown the idea that Andy Rios like wasn't his first choice. I think that that implies that he thought he was going to get more of a budget for that player than he was, but he probably was his first choice at that budget level. But none of those things happen without the consent of the first team staff. You know, Francisco Calvo might well be somebody that um, Almeida really quite likes but I also know for a fact that the front office liked him a lot as well uh, because of what his advanced metrics showed uh, as a defender. So, you know, there is always a give and a take. There's always a relationship between manager and GM. Um, but I was kind of curious, uh, we'll kick this, Jamin, if we still have you here, for you know those three phases of, you know, what are you seeing from the Jesse pre-Almeida, the Almeida, and then the Chris Leach that kind of gives you faith that it might be heading in a positive direction?
2: I think the biggest part of it is really the, the academy. Uh and the Quakes two. And keep in mind that uh the person who's who's touched those things and made them better is the person who's stepping in as the interim coach. It's Alex Cabello. He is the thread of the good things that are happening on the tactical side of the club right now. Uh, we just got to see Quakes two for the first time at PayPal Park, and while they lost one-nothing to North Texas SC, they control the game and every facet of it. In fact, in many ways, I think looked like what Matias Almeida really wanted the first team to look like in terms of the way that they control the game. Now, some people might say it's a little too slow. Um, you, know, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's not enough uh, movement and stuff. But if you watch closely enough, there are definitely some things that you see with the Quakes 2 team that you don't really see with the first team. And today, when we talked to Chris Leach, he also mentioned that what worked in the academy and what works for Quakes 2 is not necessarily what's going to work for the first team. And that he said, we're going to need to take it on a game by game basis and come up with the right tactical approach that's going to give us the result that we're looking for. I feel very good about Alex Cabello being the person to implement that approach. I think like he's tactically smart, uh, super smart. Um, he's done this methodology thing for a number of, of years. He did it for a consulting firm back in Europe, where he had a long list of clients, including national teams that were a part of that. He did this for uh, Espanol. He's done it in, in a number of different places now, and he has a little bit of head coaching experience, not that much in in uh, in Italy with San Marino. So for me, I think he, he there's more ideas that he's able to play with than we have seen so far. When you're a methodology guy, you got to be like, play this way, play this way, play this way. But I think as soon as it comes down to you need to win, not develop players, now we're talking something a good bit different. I'll be very interested to see, given Leech's comments, uh, that what works at the academy will not necessarily work in the first team and what that actually means for the tactics on the field. I'm really intrigued. What I hope to see is a team that's a little bit more willing to get on the counter. I want to see that pace up top get used. Um, You've got some of the fastest guys in the league up top in this team, and no one knows it yet because they haven't really gotten much on the break this season, and they've played in a way where they can't take advantage of it. And so hopefully they're talking about how do we use this speed that we have to our advantage. Everyone knows what these guys can do. Certainly Alex Cabello knows what these guys can do. So how do we get the best out of that I'm really intrigued to see kind of where it goes uh, from here.
0: Yeah. So uh, obviously I took us a little bit perhaps down a cul-de-sac about recruitment. I think that the, well, I'll put a pin in that and get back to that in a second. Um, but what Jamin's on about, actually, I think that leads us to a, probably a more important question is the thing that's animating the chat right now, which is, you know, the the players, obviously we know the tactics are going to change, right? We ought, Chris Weech has already told us that, our common sense tells us that, et cetera. One of the elements, though, of a tactical change is, and a new manager is also new personnel, new names that he's selecting in the first 11, p- putting them in different positions. Um, in the chat, we're talking about whether Jackson Ewell should keep his spot. Uh, should Jutson be reintroduced? He hasn't seen the field. I, I don't know. Has he gotten minutes this year? I guess a, a, you know a handful, but you know, he's basically completely marginalized um Francisco Calvo who I secretly actually think is quite valuable um but not necessarily used in the right way at least it has been so far this year um but you know those are guys who you know they've had some mistakes they've had some issues uh Ewell and Calvo there's some guys like Judson who just sit on the bench and you know we've seen him be productive in the past and Nate Patel are there any players in particular you're looking to either lose their place or gain a place in that starting 11 or kind of a way that you think Cavallo might use them differently
1: I think Judson's the the obvious one that comes out. Um, it's when the fans talk about being in the doghouse for for some reason, or perhaps you know for no reason. Um, but we're not really sure what his status is. I, if I remember correctly, I think I saw him on the injury report recently. I might be wrong about that, but um, yeah, he's he's someone that uh, was really vital to Almeida's system in the sense that he was able to cover so much ground and kind of track back when you know, the Quakes were scrambling to defend on those counterattacks. Um, I think the, the hope is that, though, that we're not going to have to do that so much anymore. Um, so perhaps we can kind of shift the way that we play uh, to avoid situations like that, to avoid situations where Francisco Calvo is, is put into those kind of awkward one-on-one uh, with no one behind him situations, uh, super high up the pitch as well. Um, but in terms of players, I think I think this year we've seen kind of the the main players that I think everyone wants to see showcase. There's we've seen a bit of the youth with Will Richmond uh, and Nico Um We've seen uh, a little bit of the veterans as well with Tommy Thompson, uh, and they've been able to contribute. And I think you know at moments this team has legitimately looked like you know a playoff team. We we've, we've seen some really pretty football, especially like with the insertion of Jamiro Montero into the mix. Um, we've seen some really good combination play. And I think uh, what 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 you guys were talking about earlier was that uh, how how can we see this team tactically evolve? And I think that counterattack, perhaps sitting in a bit deeper uh, and, you know, letting Christian Espinoza, Kate Cowell, Jeremy Bovesy, uh Jamiro Montero do their work on that counter. Even Jackson Ewell, you know, we haven't seen him make those kind of incisive passes that we really saw in 2019 uh, that made the Quakes really elite, you know, getting the ball out wide, getting in the middle to Vaco in 2019 and Magnus Eriksson. That's when we saw them shining. So I'm I'm interested to see if, can we see some of these players go back to that level that we wanted to see them at and, you know, where they were projected to be going. Um, I think uh, perhaps, you know, some tactical conservatism, can help in that sense uh perhaps you know we don't need to continue on with this uh kind of uh bielsa tree model um i was just thinking uh, before this is unrelated but you know we had 20 years of the frank yallop coaching tree and then we, we went to the exact opposite to the bielsa coaching tree so it'll be interesting to see where we go from here <laughs> i'm <laughs> now
0: i'm trying to think of what frank yallop and marcelo bielsa would think if, if you describe them as the opposite points yeah. of a the tree they they are that's fair enough but i think it's really funny um the yeah frank yallop practices by the way did not have the intensity of of almeida's <laughs> famous murder ball sessions um the the other so this is interesting here too because you know one of the things about the almeida era that was so uh I mean, there was a lot of things that were baffling or like difficult to kind of get your arms around. And I don't mean like baffling and therefore definitely bad, but like actually genuinely hard to understand was the fact that there were certain players who, when they showed up under him, he really like fundamentally changed them and got them to be a different kind of player than they were before in a positive way. And many of those exact same players have now seemed to regress or plateau ever since. And it's just the strangest thing to watch because... You know, some coaches just aren't capable of development at all, fair enough, right? But Matias clearly had the ability to kind of bring a tune out of some of these guys. Tommy Thompson didn't have a position, and Almeida made him a fullback. And, you know, like maybe he's not the greatest fullback in the world, but at least he has an MLS-level position now. Um, Jackson Ewell, you know, really came into his own under Almeida. He added actually a lot to his game physically uh, and tactically as well on the defensive side of the ball. He got a lot better. Christian Espinosa never really clicked anywhere he went. But when he came uh, to MLS under Almeida, all of a sudden, boom, he found his confidence, he found his form. Uh, Chofis, you know, uh, uh, Chofis Lopez, um, there's there's a player in there. We all know that he's technically gifted, uh, but we didn't really see it until he had some time to get his feet under him in Almeida. So I think that the, the one of the interesting questions will be, Are any of those guys who stalled in their development, you know, guys like Marcos Lopez, Kate Cowell, who have been kind of on a relatively flat trajectory in recent times, uh, Jackson Ewell, who appears to be sliding, is that uh, trajectory going to flip around uh, in the other way? So, uh, one I want to put to you, Jamin, is are there any Almeida development projects that you think the Cavello? that are more tactical than psychological? Because if I'm generalizing, I would say that Matias was really good at getting people's mindsets back into the game, regaining them confidence, getting discipline, whatever it was, really elite at that. Tactically, of course, we all think, you know, have our qualms with the way he set up his tactics. Are there any particular players you think would benefit specifically from more tactical focus?
2: I mean, right now, it's Tanner Beeson actually playing his natural position, right? I mean... Uh, you have a player who last year is arguably your best defender for portions of the season. And yes, I think we all see a lot with Nathan. And we think that, you know, Nathan's going to be like, you know, he potentially has the ability to be a Walker Zimmerman level player in this league. I really believe that about him, but at the same time, you need Tanner Beeson to grow because, you know, he's a potential star within this team and someone that can be a rock for many years to come I just want to see him play at left back. So I feel like there was a lot of concerns about Francisco Calvo blocking his path. It's turned out to be true. We haven't seen the Nathan Beeson combination uh, yet. This, And Jamie, just to
0: clear, just because he said it the other way around, you want to see him at center back. Sorry.
2: I want to see him at center back. All right. Left, yeah. left center back. Sorry. Yeah. yeah left yeah, yeah. center back. The, um, and, and for me, like fixing that combo is the start of getting the spine correct in this team again. Another piece that has to be, you know, with that is Judson when he's healthy. I think we all know that. Um, so tactically just getting Judson back into the mix to be able to do things like help stop and counterattacks. So long as he's healthy, so long as he's mobile, you know we don't know if he's lost a step and, and that's a reason he's not playing since the 2019, 2020 era. Last year he got played often at like right back and, you know, it it was odd situations there. You know, I, want to see, um, I want to see Jackson, you know, playing beside Jutson again. Is that too much to ask? I feel like it almost has been. I want to see Nathan playing beside Beeson again. Like, is that too much to ask? I feel like it has been. Now that said every coach and and, and Colin, uh, you know, well, you both know this honestly, every coach is going to make lineup decisions that fans find frustrating. I'm interested to see what it's going to be with Alex Cabello, but I get the sense it's not going to be those. It'll just be something different. And so for me, it's that. The other thing I want to see is I want to see Espinoza find himself again. Um, He really, I think there's tactically, they're asking him to kind of drop deeper in a lot of situations. And I want to see if he's pushed a bit higher, if, if they'll push him a bit higher and get him back into dangerous situations so that, he would be back to leading this league in expected assists again. I do so much work to try to promote him uh, in this league, and and because he's been a top three, top five expected assists player in this league for the last three years, and he gets very little respect. And I hope Andrew Weeby's watching right now because yes, I'm talking to you, Andrew. Um, you know, and, and so look, let's get. Let's but he's get, but he's
0: been very yeah, bad this year, and but he the has been last year, and
2: I think a lot of that is the yeah. tactics. I think tactically, they're asking him to do different things. So, you know, I want to see, you know, him kind of establish himself. I think we need to see what's the right approach for Montero. Is he a 10? Is Does he need to play alongside somebody else? We know that he tracks back a lot, but we haven't seen him become that kind of expected uh, assist type guy that you want your 10 to be able to be. So there's a lot of tactical questions, I think, right now with this particular team, uh, not to mention the outside back situation. Don't even get me started with those. So tactically, the whole thing needs adjustment. I think everybody will benefit from being played in the right place and in a way that suits their strengths rather than being asked to support a system that doesn't suit their particular strengths. And I think that's what everyone has been been asked so far this season, which is weird because that wasn't really what was being asked sometimes in 2019. I think players were in their most natural positions in 2019 for the most part. Were they overused? Absolutely. And that's why they faltered down the stretch. also Burnout, I would said, is a very real thing. And, uh, you know, they, they hit that wall. But were they actually played in the correct positions that they could maximize their abilities? The answer is yes. So something changed between 2019 and 2022. And I never quite could figure out what that was.
1: I think part of kind of where questions came up for me there was kind of finding a front three and front four that gelled. I don't think after Magnus Eriksson left, we never really got that. Um, even after when Vaco left, we we had a, a front three that was working, a front four that was working uh, that first year in 2019, and even parts of 2020. Uh, but but I think, you know, and this, you know, comes into the player personnel decisions and, and signings. Uh, when we inserted Andy Rios and Carlos Fierro to to replace those two players, we didn't really get that. Uh, and And since then, I think a lot of people were hoping that, you know, with all this new talent injected into the team this year, Matias could perhaps turn it around and, and give us something like what we saw in parts of 2020 and, and 2019. Um, but it, but it, it wasn't quite there. So I'll be interested to see how Cavallo, uh, you know, shapes this team's attacking identity and if and when or if and how we're able to get that kind of front three, front four gelling again and, and having a kind of distinct style of attack. Uh, because I think part of the reason that Christian Espinoza struggles in those moments is because he didn't really have anything going on the other side uh, of the pitch from him. Uh, there weren't kind of two threats of the attack.
0: Yeah. So I, I think that this is this is the moment I actually want to take a step kind of back out of the weeds of the tactics of this club. Cause this, I think this gets back to where I was uh, interested in earlier about the recruitment issues here um, and talent on the field, because I think that, I, I, you know, obviously talk to both of you individually offline. We all think there's talent in this team. We don't think this is a bottom of MLS 28 and 28th place team in terms of talent level. Um, and I think that that gets to one of the touchy subjects of the Almeida debate. I've always been of the opinion that he is, you know, undershooting the talent that he has. Um, and other, you know, people have the perspective that, you know, the personnel just doesn't simply fit him. Um, but you know, I, I want to run through some things here. The, the year that he arrived, um, he had Valerie Kazashvili and Chris Wanolowski were his two highest paid players. After that, the next year, you know, Vaca was still there, but you add, oh, I'm sorry. This, oh, yeah, and Chris Christianospa was on a subsidized loan that year, which is uh, one of the secret things that we don't <laughs> talk enough about. Uh, but the next year, we got uh, Carlos Firo, Andy Rios all brought in. Christianos the previous year, Osvaldo Alanis, Are all in there? They're all Almeida guys. That is a spending level that had never previously been involved in the club. What you get, and beyond that, is you get Chofis Lopez added to that group in uh, 2021, and Jeremy Abobasi in the middle of that season. This year, in addition to all that that we just said, you got it. Well, by the way, you drop off Andy Rios and Carlos Fierro, who weren't effective in the in that group of people. You have Jamiro Montero, who's you know basically the highest paid player that's ever played for the San Jose Earthquakes. You also have Jan Grigus and Francisco Calvo in those, in those TAM contracts. You know, th- there's like a, a steady progression of talent being added to this team as the results get worse. The league is absolutely adding talent at the same time, by the way. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, standing still should be good enough for the league. But the, it seems to me like the players that they've been bringing in, in those later, or, you know, right now, if anything, those higher paid players are better than the ones that preceded them. You know, the, th- the four big swings, I call this like the class of 22 for uh, Chris Leach, was Jeremy Abobasi, who did come last year, but was in the middle of the year and was kind of done with the future in mind. You have uh, Jan Gregoosh, Francisco Calvo, and uh, Montero. Of those four, three of them are unambiguously very good. You know, I think that we all agree that Montero is a very good player. Maybe could be used a little better. Jan Greger is just probably our best central midfielder at the uh, current time. And Ibovesi has finally kind of found some goal-scoring form. Calvo, I actually think, will probably be a solid contributor and has added a lot of value in terms of goals, perhaps in a slightly different role than he is maybe as a left-back uh, in switching with Tiener Bysen, um, which is a role that he's played before. My question is, is this real or you know like is there actually more talent on this team than there was last year than there was the year before or is this just kind of uh you know me getting excited about the shiny new objects and the nails and that's you and uh you first
1: yeah i i 100 agree you know like you said we've talked about this before this team is talented and we've seen it in moments we've seen some really good combination play jennyan gregoo Sumir montero uh jeremy above in some moments there's a lot of talent on this team i think Um, And I think part of the reason that we're able to see this is because of, uh, you know, this shift towards looking internally within MLS for talent. It's kind of a new strategy that we haven't seen uh, at the Quakes since perhaps like before before 2017. I can't really remember the first like legitimate internal league transaction. Uh, I think the only one that comes to mind is the Quincy America for Dominic Aduro trade, which is. More so just to, uh, you know, get both of these guys a different change of scenery. Uh, uh, so so I think that kind of shift in personnel decisions is something that the Quakes can really benefit from because you're just uh, you're taking from a whole new pal- talent pool. Um, and I think uh, this team is legitimately talented. Uh, these players have been proven in MLS. They all kind of have this uh, same characteristic to the point where they're good, but their previous clubs don't think they're good enough to the point where they deserve another contract or a raise. So this is kind of a, a new uh, model of recruitment, um, and it's interesting to see, but overall, I think you know it's a really strong uh, core of players. And in addition to that, I think you know Chris Leach has done a good job over the years of building players through the draft. Uh, we've got some really solid homegrown signings as well. Um, I think the draft this year was a home run. Uh, and, and to be honest, looking back, you look at guys like Tanner Beeson, like Jamin says so much, he's such a quality player and he has so much potential. And most importantly in MLS, you know, he's at that price point where you don't have to uh, worry about, Oh, we're using an international slot on this guy. Uh, we're paying this guy Tam money. He's at a really good price point. And and Paul Murray is another guy like that. Who's I think impressed me a lot this year and, and actually in every year subsequent to the first game he ever played for the club in which I think he got a red card. It was like a preseason match. He got a red card within five minutes. So that's been really impressive to me. I think there's a lot of talent on this team. And I think, uh, if you were to ask me before the year, you know, give me the median manager in MLS, uh, no crazy tactics, uh, simple, pragmatic football. I think this team could legitimately be a a contender to make the playoffs. And it's not that hard to make the playoffs in MLS. So, um, we should be getting to that point, I think.
0: Yeah, there's a. I'm now I'm forgetting exactly who said this. I'm 90% sure it was an Italian manager. So I'm going to credit to Giovanni Trapattoni here. Maybe it was Claudio Ranieri. I actually don't remember. Um, but he said that like a good manager can make a team about 10% better and a bad manager can make a team about 30% worse. Uh, and I think that that rule very much applies here. And I, and I with the caveat, of course, that I'm saying that Matthias was a bad manager for San Jose. I think that we can all imagine you know, other circumstances in which perhaps he would be uh, better off. I actually wanted to highlight, uh, let's see, it was Ryan McGrady's comment here uh, from 1039 here about uh, how long it will take to break the habits of Matias' system uh, and adapt to new new systems uh, that are, you know, potentially at least new to this team. My actually short take on this, and I'm I'm just going to quickly go around here and see if you guys disagree, is, I think that reverting to tactics uh, that we expect them to will actually go quite quickly because those systems that Cavelo has been running and that he, the principles that he'll be teaching are the kinds of things that kids get trained growing up, you know, every footballer on earth, Knows how to play in a four four two and a four three three because that's what they do when they're coming up through academies, uh, and it's typically a little bit more exotic systems that they might be less familiar with. And so, I, I personally think that the uh, the acclimation period won't necessarily be as long as the other way around, where you're adapting to a man marking system that's a little bit more exotic.
2: And it's also important to note that some of these guys do play national team, um, and they're very used to going into situations where they need to change. And play to the tactics of the manager and you don't ever hear anyone you know going into the national team and going like you know oh well they couldn't pick up the tactics again it's never a conversation so i do believe that it while it might take a little bit of adjustment guess what they kind of get a freebie a little bit tomorrow night no offense to, to bay cities but you know the earthquake should be able to win tomorrow night regardless of who they roll out there And it's an opportunity to kind of get back and relearn certain aspects and have a little bit more forgiveness for being able to make a mistake. Now, hey, you know, MLS teams have lost in in U.S. Open Cup, you know, before. And I'm not saying it absolutely won't happen because it it could happen. But I think it's a good opportunity ahead of the Sounders, you know, this weekend to try to get the players kind of into a mode of, hey, we're going to do the zonal defense. And get you guys back used into some of this, and you know this is a good uh, game in order to be able to to get that some of, some of that's those kinks figured out, and uh, and just kind of get back into the habits again.
0: And A, what about the tactical acclamation period for you?
1: Yeah, um, no, I'll definitely take Bay Cities FC over over the Sounders uh, for my first game back. But uh, I think there's there's a lot of questions that I have, and actually you guys may have some insight onto this. Uh, we always heard about these intense, grueling training sessions back in 2019 with Matias. I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the positive elements of that sort of training will trickle into kind of this next system. Because, you know, these players have, uh, a lot of them have been with Matias for for several years now. So uh, there's probably a lot of good habits and, and good things that have been instilled in them. So I think it'll be interesting to see how they take that and then translate those, you know, good qualities into... Kind of a more pragmatic uh more uh typical system of football um but yeah like you mentioned i think in, with an interim coach you're not doing anything crazy you're not trying to reinvent the game you're not going to be playing any bl ball uh, or anything too far-fetched like that so i think it'll be a, a pretty straightforward tactical acclimation uh i think some players will definitely have an opportunity to shine more than others um but overall i think Quakes fans should feel pretty comfortable with the fact that we're not going to be losing these games 5-0 or, or 5-1 anymore
0: um yeah and and by the way when you know a part of all i mean this has come up in a couple of these different questions so far or a couple of these different answers so far is you know we've mentioned the draft we mentioned the young players you know i think that this is kind of a golden generation of young players for san jose and not in the sense of I don't know if there's going to be three or four guys who are sold onto Europe for huge fees, but there's quite a few guys that I could imagine being, you know, uh, legitimate first team contributors. And I would actually put up the Quakes drafting record over the last five years since the 2018 draft against any team in this league in terms of what they did with the position that was available to them. So, you know, obviously some teams had higher draft picks and, you know, they were able to snag really talented players. Um, but, you know, Jackson Ewell falling to them at six that year was amazing. Um, you know, you have Tanner Beeston and Paul Marie are legitimate first team players, and they were picked outside the top 10. They actually drafted a couple second round MLS squad players and Danny Masofsky and John Bell, neither of whom are, of course, with the San Jose Earthquakes, unfortunately. But, you know, they did identify that talent at the early years. So they have some good draftees. And then this year, you know, we don't know what we have in Oscar Agron yet, although he was good enough to get a contract. But Usini Buda looks like a real player. Um, and, you know, the brief flashes that we've seen of Siad Haji indicate he might be a f- far away from being a contributor, but his talent level is very high. You know, Nico uh, Sakiris is, uh, like, he already looks like he's comfortable at this level. Uh, even though he's just 16 years old, you know, Kate Cowell, his development has stalled a little bit, uh, perhaps, but he's still just 18 years old uh, and is physically as, you know, impressive and as imposing as anybody. You know, th- these are a bunch of different young players that could be turned into real stars. And I actually think this is one of the advantages of moving on from Matias that has nothing to do with Matias personally, um, but it has to do with the fact that coaches care about winning the game that's in front of them because they know that if they don't win the game that's in front of them, they get fired. So, if you liberate the coach and you say, if you lose this weekend, that's okay. We just need you to kind of create some solidity and do some development with the roster that we have. Then you can actually give yourself a little bit more space to play younger players. Uh, you know, Securities, um, Buddha, Will Richmond, also another homegrown, you know, all the other guys we mentioned today, they might have more of an ability to get game time. Uh, If you have an Alex Covello in charge, who does not really, he's not under the gun of a mandate the way that Matias Almeida, who was definitely in the hot seat, was. And Almeida played a lot of those young guys anyway. So I think that that's something to kind of potentially uh, look forward to. Um, By the way, I know that we've gotten really deep into, you know, the weeds here of the tactics, but I think that the reason why a lot of people tuned in tonight was yeah, Matias Almeida departure and the kind of the emotions and the stuff that kind of goes into it. And so I wanted to kind of zoom back and go into more uh, diagnosis mode, you know, so I famously, of course, have been critical for a long time, uh, I thought, you know, his tactics weren't suited for it. And I thought that, you know, that the, the the fit between front office and and coach was never going to be good for recruitment. Um, But there was other people who I respect and had the opposite opinion as well. And Nate Patel, do you want to give voice to that kind of that other line of thinking, or at least as it was for you for the time and and how you feel about it now?
1: Yeah, sure. No, we've definitely had our our fair share of conversations talking about how we kind of disagreed on uh, what the problem was and and why Matias wasn't given the opportunity to succeed. So um, yeah, I think, Going back, uh, there's been a lot of uh, ups and downs during his tenure. Uh, you know, you have a GM leaving in the middle of his tenure. Uh, perhaps th- there's a lot of questions that I have personally. Like, what was he promised when he arrived? You know, uh, he always talked about this project in, in which we were injecting youth into the lineup, uh, which we were developing players. I think we did a lot of that in, in the first couple of years. But um, from my perspective, I think where we really kind of dropped the ball is I think those kind of TAM-level, DP-level signings in the, the, the middle of his tenure. Um, they didn't really make that improvement that we wanted to see them make. Uh, and that was really tough, uh, I think, for Matias because he wasn't given the opportunity to sh- implement his system in the way that he wanted to. Um, and I, I think that was kind of the main disconnect. And I think that's what a lot of the pro Matias fans will say is that, Hey, uh, we brought in this rock star manager who's sought out by, you know, several clubs around the world. Uh, sure. It gets a little annoying when, uh, you have, you know, rumors about him going to some league MX team or some South American national team. But that, that says a lot about, uh, the man and, you know, how he, uh, how he's perceived in, in the rest of the footballing world. Uh, so that's, I feel like that's where my kind of, uh, main uh disagreement was with you and that was that we should have given him kind of more resources to work with uh in order to achieve what that he wanted to achieve which we got a taste of in 2019 uh, and that's always what i would bring it back to is that when we kind of took the league by surprise in 2019 uh we had a, a decent set of players up front like i said those front four vaco Magnus, uh, Wando, Danny Hooson, uh, there, there's a good uh, Christian Espinoza, of course. There's a good group of players there. They meshed very well. And I, I, don't, I just don't think we kind of rekindled that. Um, and obviously, I think there's one thing that we aren't talking about and we didn't talk about at all, which happened right after 2019, which was COVID. Um, you know, we didn't make any acquisitions that summer of 2020 that perhaps uh, hindered us some more. Um, and there, there was a, a lot of other questions that came up, you know, Benjamin Galindo uh, is, was Matias's right-hand man throughout Chivas. And and uh, he obviously had a, a very big impact on the club and everywhere that he's been. Um, he's universally loved. I think we saw him being honored at, at a Chivas game recently. Um, so he's a very important figure that we didn't really uh, get to chance to reintegrate into the, to the team. And there were also uh, some other things that happened in, in Matthias's personal life, which, uh, you know, are very legitimate, uh, very legitimate excuses and reasons. So that, that's I think the the pro Matias case that I had. Um, there were a lot of things that happened, that I think were out of his hands and perhaps he wasn't given the chance to play his cards uh in the way that he wanted to, um, and you know, for for this situation in San Jose, uh, perhaps you know we've talked about this. This wasn't a perfect marriage. Maybe it's just best to part ways. And and I think that's the the point that I came to, um, where I realized that you know, this is a great manager. He'd be uh, great in other areas, other systems, but um, it just wasn't really working for us. But um, I think given the right opportunity, perhaps it could have worked in San Jose uh, given the right sequence of events, but it just really didn't. Um, and that's kind of how the cards stacked out. Jamin, do you want to interject here? <clears throat> well, and they brought up a couple of points that I, I do think are worth
2: elaborating a little bit more. And one is the Benjamin Galindo situation. Um, there is a lot of, there are a lot of people who believe that one of the reasons that the tactics went the direction that they did both last year and the start of this year is because Galindo was probably much more important to those tactics than people understood coming in. He doesn't have the name Maestro for nothing. Now you hear Shiva's fans also refer to Matias as Maestro, but the real Maestro here, you know, was Galindo. And it's quite possible that we could have seen a bit of a different outcome had he been here. And also I do think that the loss of his father – had a real impact that we will never quite understand. And one of the things that I came to appreciate about Matias, and I butted heads with him quite a bit in press conferences. And anyone who's watched Black and a Soul or The Aftershock of the last few years, you know, knows that. But at the same time, there were some, some opportunities that I had to ask him questions about Galindo, about his father. About the things that his family was going through in Argentina and such, and we got a real good sense of Matias the human and some of the things that he felt. And you know, I remember specifically, you know, and, and say what you want to if you don't think vaccines work or whatever. I guess that that that's your opinion. But uh, when I asked him about kind of uh, COVID and his father, and one of the things he said was my country doesn't have access to all the things that people have here. And it really makes me angry to think that had vaccines been available to my father in Argentina, he would still be alive today. And I feel like that kind of pain about his father was something that he carried for the entire season, uh, last year, and he probably is still feeling it today that that's probably never gonna fully go away. He clearly was very attached to his father a lot of very human moments with matias that a lot of people said you just don't see those in press conferences you know with managers and people of matias's stature the other thing that i i can appreciate is that i got to spend a lot of time in mexico right before um the uh the pandemic and the amount of love in guadalajara for that man cannot be expressed it is crazy how much people just adore Matias and I even would even tell a few people I I get to talk to this guy like every week and they're like are you serious like this was like you get to talk to God every week type type thing you know uh and uh, you know that was that's the way that people revere him you know in Guadalajara and to kind of get, go into Mexico and to go into Shiva's territory and get to kind of experience You know, that I think gave me a whole kind of fresh and different perspective. I actually really also liked the opportunity we had earlier in the season uh, to talk with Carlos Eustis about uh, him a bit because, you know, Carlos, you know, got to see a side of him and a bit of him that I never quite got to see. He gets to attend practices and things that I was never, you know, able to do once I joined uh, kind of the the regular media because of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, there was a lot that he was able to share. And, I appreciated that Matias, the person, I think a lot of people have been saying it in the comments tonight. Matias, the person, you know, you know, was a very different, we ha- we all have, I think, very different opinions of Matias, the person versus Matthias the coach. Um, the tactics were crazy. Ultimately they didn't work. Either he didn't get the right personnel for it, or, you know, you can say management didn't spend to get the players that he needed or whatever the case was, but Matias, the person, Uh, I have a very different opinion on uh, than I do Matias the coach and I think that that's a real credit to Matias is that he never quite saw success as a coach in San Jose had him barely getting into the playoffs one year, but uh, Matias the person I think we got to know in a really special way that uh, probably very few fan bases ever get to really kind of kind of know a coach.
0: So thank you both for, for bringing that into the discussion. There's obviously a lot to talk about here on, you know, the tactics and all that that we've gone through. Um, But yeah, you know, he was a singular figure uh, and some of the emotionality he had that would occasionally step over the line in ways that I found, uh, you know, it it would rub me the wrong way. The exact flip side of the coin is he was as humane as any coach, uh, you know, could possibly be. And he wore his heart on his sleeve uh, and, you know, he, he, he connected with his fans in a way that no one else did. So, you know, sometimes you're, you're that, that, that full emotional commitment that he brought to his job uh, would cause him to step over lines, perhaps, but that's just part and parcel of the package of someone who was, a, you know, immensely emotionally aware. And as I said, you know, really kind of connected in a way that no one else possibly could have. Um, there's really no debate though. I think, as I said, even of the people in the club who were telling us about how frustrated they were Uh, With you know, with the way he was coaching and and the way he was leaving, even they were were very complimentary of the man. So there's no debate to be had there. Um, But given that we're coming up kind of roughly on an hour here, I wanted to kind of reorient it actually to like another touchy subject unrelated to that one, um, which is the level of investment in the club. And the reason that I think it's important to talk about is one. It's a part of the Matias Almeida debate. The people who defend him say that it's, he failed because of a lack of investment. Uh, and two, it's, it's actually really important for the future of the club. Uh, it's really important for where it heads for, from here, uh, because if they're a chronically underinvested team, their hopes are not that high going forward. Uh, unless they kind of catch magic in a bottle. And basically a lot of what I'm seeing here in the chat has to do with that in various different ways. The other side of the, they aren't investing enough equation is like, oh, you have to invest well. And there's some teams that don't invest as much. Um, and that's a line that I have mostly been supporting myself. Uh, but I kind of wanted to do that, uh, do this around. And by the way, hello, Phil Leva, And to everybody else in the chat, by the way, I know a bunch of you are in there. Um, so thank you for, uh, for attending as always. Um, but in terms of the spending, you know, I, I actually, Jamin, I don't know if we can pull up uh, graphics on the screen on an impromptu basis. So I'm just going to go ahead and show it on my cell phone here. I think that you all saw this um, from the Quakes Epicenter Twitter that spending and results since 2015, which, by the way, happened to be the eight seasons that I've been covering the club, uh, have gone in opposite directions. You know, generally it was middling kind of XG under uh, Kinnear, very bad under Star A a little bit better than uh, middling under Almeida's first year and then apocalyptic the next three, you know, and that was all during a time that spending was increasing and spending relative to the league was holding steady. So for me, spending alone and investment alone is not the full answer. And I think that's the nuance that I want to make sure everybody understands because they hear me say like, you know, I pull up this chart or whatever and it makes it sound like, Oh, spending doesn't matter. Spending absolutely matters. It matters all around the world. It just matters less in MLS than any other league in the world. And even in every other league, money alone will not buy your way out of trouble. There's a reason why Manchester United, I think, has the second highest total spend in the Premier League right now uh, and is struggling right now in sixth. You know, this is, you know, just because you're using a lot of uh, funds doesn't mean you get good results. So the key is turn up the spending when you can uh, and turn it on everything. In, in MLS, there's a salary cap that applies to 90% of the roster uh, that constrains how much you can spend. The real places where you can invest kind of above and beyond that are those three DP slots and, and we never talk about this, the club infrastructure, the back office staff, the scouting, you know, recovery uh, investments, things like that. That's been underinvested, quite frankly, uh, until very recent years, but we are seeing a kind of a changing tide on that. And then in terms of salaries... They are consistently below the median salary in the league. Uh, it, clearly, they think that that's uh, probably an appropriate level. If they put in 10% more spending and kind of, or 20% more spending and caught up to that median, they probably would have a little bit more success. Uh, it just isn't in a be all and end all. But the last thing I wanted to say about kind of investment is I think that there's, I mean, I work at a financial firm and it, it, let me tell you, if somebody, you know, if you give somebody a million dollars to manage and they say, I need more to buy the companies that I want to buy, uh, and you say, well, tough, I only a million dollars that I got for you, and they buy something and they do poorly with it, you're not particularly tempted to come back to them and say, oh, here's two next time. You kind of have to prove yourself with a budget that you're given in order to be given the credibility and the trust and the respect to get more. And I think that actually is one of the fundamental problems in the T.S. meta era. Is I think is I actually think John Fisher probably was willing to turn the faucet and spend a little bit more than we've been seeing in recent years. But what happened was in 2019 he upped his spending. It, it came with good results. 2020 they upped the spending again. Results got really bad, and then he pulled back. An owner having a little bit more faith and consistency in his club, maybe that'd be nice. But I don't find it hard to relate to the idea of well, if you're not doing a good job investing the money I'm giving you already, I'm not going to double it. Um, And I I kind of wanted to hear your two perspectives on that, because I think that there is some legitimacy to the argument that, you know, different salary brackets kind of have different levels of challenge. Uh, But that obviously has been my perspective is, you know, you kind of have to earn it with a lower budget in order to get more. Uh, But maybe that just traps us in an infinite cycle. So anyway, and A Patel, I don't know if there's a question in there, but I'll hand it over to you to tell me about
1: investment. No, that's that's all the stuff I like to talk about. So so that's perfect. Um, yeah, I think you made some really good points. And and to jump off of uh, jump off of that and kind of offer a, a counter take that I think, or not a counter take, but but more so just like a, a caveat that I see. And it is is that I think player recruitment and investment in general is not necessarily a one side of the coin thing. Uh, it's not an only technical staff thing. It's not an only coaching staff thing. It's not an only ownership thing. It needs to be like a medley between these three things. And if there's no strategy, if there's no broader strategy, and uh, if there's no general consensus in the club between these three parties in terms of where we're going, then nothing's ever going to get done. Do, do I think that if Matias Almeida was given the free reign to, to spend uh, as much as he wanted? I, I strongly believe, and we may disagree on this, I believe that results would have been way better and we would have uh, certainly seen uh, a lot better of a performance in, in 2020, 2021, and even this year. Um, the point you make with, uh, you know, if you're given a million dollars and you don't do well with it, I think that that is a good point in in one sense. But in, in the footballing world, um, there I think there's some more uh, details within that because the kind of returns on a player – an MLS at that kind of TAM level can be far less than, you know, for example, a DP level. Um, But anyways, I I think the, the key point that we agree on is that you don't have to spend insane amounts to win an MLS, uh, especially an MLS, a salary cap league with all these different rules that kind of protect the, you know, the bottom teams of the, of the league. Um, But yeah, I think the most important thing is that we need that kind of, trio working together with a focused strategy and with this new coaching staff that's going to be brought in i'm assuming uh we're gonna have a much stronger strategy and you know from what i've observed and what i've you know uh, heard from you guys is that there is a strategy in place right now and we've seen a little bit of it we've seen it with the academy dating back to even you know pre matthias uh when jesse furnelli came the academy has come such a long way um we have this beautiful facility that could be in the works. There's a lot of good stuff going for the club. Uh, and I think there's uh, little things here and there that are also a lot of good uh, key indicators that perhaps we are headed in that right direction where we have these three people uh, or these three groups working together to to sort out the recruitment and get a product on the pitch that you know the fans can be proud of. Because Quake's fans have... Uh, We've had it tough for quite a while. Uh, <laughs> we're coming up on a decade now. Last time we had a good, I was in middle school, so it's uh, we're getting there. I think. Um, yeah, I think there's there's some really good signs, but you know, everyone needs to be on the same page in the club. Um, Alignment is super stuff. important.
0: Alignment yeah. is super important the tech the the back office staff I, I actually have just seen a couple comments uh, here that were about transfer fees Mike's is the most recent one Lance Evans you sent one earlier about that being the only transfer you paid for the club and I want to just clear up a couple of things here because I actually think it gets to this really important point about the dollars you see versus the dollars you don't see so the Espinosa transfer fee actually was entirely from Fisher's pocket because uh, for a designate for any player actually on the roster uh, their salary cap hit is their total guaranteed compensation, uh, plus whatever transfer fee it took to get them there or loan fee, etc. Bonuses and other stuff is kind of handled, you know, uh, on top of that. But that's basically what it is, is their salary plus the transfer fee. Um, So for a designated player, the only the the amortized transfer fee plus their salary only up to six hundred and twelve thousand five hundred dollars counts against the cap. Everything else is off of it. And why that's important is if something happens inside the cap, the league is paying for it. And TAM, for all intents and purposes, and GAM now, uh, that is mandatory TAM and GAM, all of that all comes from the league pool. So basically, rather than distribute revenue out to the teams, the MLS kind of holds onto it to itself, extends the contracts itself. So discretionary TAM and designated players are where you see things that come straight out of uh, Fisher's pocket. They also have a couple other weird mechanisms they've been throwing around in recent years, which include things like the U22 initiative, which now also is a place where it comes out of an owner's pocket uh, to a certain extent over a certain dollar amount. Um, But then Generation Adidas and other off uh, books contracts are actually from the league as well. It's unbelievably complicated. But it points to a thing uh, that, as, as I said, this, the spending you see versus the spending you don't see. You do see the Espinosa transaction fee, uh, not because it was ever publicly reported, although I think it's probably around the 2 million, 2 million plus range, um, but because we all kind of knew it was there and it was announced in the press release. There's a lot of other players that were actually paid transfer fees to get them into the into the club that you don't see in the press release. For example, Marcos Lopez came in on a transfer fee. Nathan came over with a transfer fee. Judson came over with a transfer fee. You know, there are all of these other instances. And or, and by the way, there are loan fees as well or extended for certain players. Um, so there there's a lot of different kind of circumstances uh, where... Uh, where they're going to end up paying a transfer fee that you don't necessarily see it. And it doesn't come out in that annual or biannual report or semi-annual report that comes from the MLS Players Union either, because that is just the salaries. So that's one category of spending you don't see. Another category of spending you don't see is that back office staff. Uh, And so that includes things like the analytics staff that uh, we've been talking about in the chat here, that now they have three full-time analytics staff, Uh, the scouting department, you know, obviously Bruno Costa has been doing a good job there. They've been expanding a lot of their capabilities. There's people in the front office you have not heard of who are working on important technical issues. Um, All of those things are very good, important spending. To Phil's earlier comment, however, um, and by the way, Daniel Roberts makes an excellent point here as well. Almeida was the highest paid coach in the league, at least for a time. And and at least at this point, I don't think he's any longer the highest individual, but very much on the high end of the spectrum. So you're seeing a lot of spending there that doesn't necessarily become obvious to players. And I think that might explain a little bit more the psychology of John Fisher of saying You know, I am making the investments that you're telling me to make, and it's just not coming to the results that I'm looking for, even though we always fixate and and my chart fixates on as well what we see in terms of salaries. So it's an incomplete picture, Um, but it's that's totally compatible, even though I'm saying that there are all these spending forms that you don't see that make the club maybe a little bit more kind of right in the dead middle of the pack. Phil's earlier comment is true is like, look, if you're, it's still possible that they're not spending enough money and they're not spending money on the right things. Um, even if it's not the complete total problem. So I think this is a classic example of, you know, Almeida probably would have been more successful with more spending, but we can also understand why he wasn't trusted to do so. Um, all right. So I think Colin, that we're we'll if,
2: if I can yeah. add on top of that. <clears throat> yeah. Add and one that, more thing and then we're going to head it to a wrap after that. I know I, I have to tread very carefully here because um Uh, I am having certain conversations which are fairly sensitive. And one of the things I can tell you is that transfer fees are not what people really think they are. uh, There's a general perception that a transfer fee is like a statement of intent, like, oh, you know, we really are trying to do this thing. But transfer fees quite often are used to hide other costs in Europe that get passed around. Um, and there's a lot that goes in sometimes in those transfer fee situations. And in some ways, they're actually unscrupulous, to be quite honest. And one of the things that we don't see as much of in MLS as you do in Europe are transfer fees because everything's kind of one handled by the league uh, from a financial perspective. So you can't really be unscrupulous. Otherwise, MLS would be unscrupulous and they'd have you know the government uh, investigating them pretty quickly for that so uh, a lot of you don't see the same level of transfer fees the other thing that you see is the transfer fees again are kind of like buying the rights to a player and Colin you've written extensively about this before it's it's doesn't necessarily it's not what you're going to be paying them and in MLS you actually have to amortize the transfer fee in with the salary and it becomes part of what you need uh, to buy down in order to get under the cap so if you put your money into transfer fees, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Colin, but you actually will have less money to spend using the gam exactly that you right. do have. And that's so, exactly right. Except for the cat- is,
0: except for designated players, that's the the only category where it's outside. And the U22 initiative,
2: right. And so, it might be a very bad idea uh, in order to use transfer fees because what one of the things that the extra time crew actually brought up today, and I don't think it's that episode is yet aired on, um, on uh, you know, like Apple Apple Podcasts and such, but it is up on YouTube. And one of the things that they talked about today, and this is a credit to, to both Jesse Firinelli and now to a greater extent, Chris Leach, is they have built a ton of flexibility into their contracts. So by not going into these things, this team has a bunch of one-year rentals that they can decide whether they move forward on or whether they leave behind. That's not only attractive... Uh, you know, in terms of players, uh, opportunities around players and their ability to have some flexibility around the cap, that's attractive to a potential head coach because now the head coach coming in knows that they're not saddled with players that they're not going to want. They might have to live with a short-term situation. Maybe they don't like Francisco Calvo. Okay, well you live with Calvo until the end of the year, and then pff, you can cut him, and he's gone. Right. So the, the Quakes right now, and uh, you know, it have created themselves a ton of uh, cap flexibility and contract flexibility. And I think this is something that we don't really understand enough as fans, and it's going to be really important what they do with that now going forward once they've established who this head coach is and the way that they want to play. And now they're going to be able to go out and get the players that match up to that. Coming into Almeida, some of that flexibility did not exist. And Jesse had talked to me uh, about uh, that lack of flexibility that he inherited and now, uh, you know, he's uh, he's been able to kind of address. So I think, like, now the team is in a much better position from a a cap perspective than they were before. I think we temporarily lost Colin, but looks like he is back now. So, Colin, sorry you missed the very last part of that, but I think I was just wrapping it up waiting for you to pop back in.
0: <laughs> very much appreciated, Jim. And it probably, so first of all, it's a very good point. Um, and I think it is something, I think that it's just, just part of generally it's something that all fans should understand is transfers are unbelievably difficult. Uh, you know, every time you talk to anyone who works in an industry um, for selling and buying, you know, it, you know, if you have somebody you want to sell, there's a lot of hurdles of finding the right buyer at the right price. Uh, and by the way, you know, for most of the time, you have to get the player's consent to do so if it's not within MLS. You know, there's a lot of hurdles to making a transfer work. Uh, and I think that that's something that's just kind of important and always keep in mind. And then you add on all those MLS mechanisms mm-hmm. on top of it, especially for all the intra-league stuff, there's a lot of impediments to doing transfers. Um, so, you know, there's there's going to be times when the player wants to come, the coach wants the player, but they can't make all the accounting elements of it work out and the, the deal dies on the vine. You know, I, I know that the San Jose Earthquakes made an offer for Carlos Velo way back in the day, but that doesn't mean that they get him right? You know, that, that doesn't mean that he's interested. That doesn't mean that, you know, they can realistically fit it in with a cap. So that's just kind of something you always keep in mind is how difficult it was. Colin, um, this
2: questions come up a couple of times tonight and I do want to kind of address it. Yeah. Do you have real this info? Cause I don't. So, so I don't, but just keep in mind that everyone has known where this is going over the past few days. There clearly has been negotiation here. At the end of the day, I don't know what was paid out, but I do know that they were able to come to terms. And uh, I believe that for the most part, the focus was on making sure that Almeida's staff was going to get paid, I believe, through the transition into the next opportunity for them, because he's a millionaire, but they are not. And so I think Almeida, a lot of the conversations were him trying to get money for his staff. I think his was less of a sticking point, and maybe I didn't get that well across in my tweet initially, but, um, you know, I don't know if he, if he ended up being paid off for the season, my guess is he didn't, but he probably did negotiate, uh, something for his staff and he may have gotten a little bit more. It's a severance package, right? So I think these things happen, uh, for people who are at that level of their craft. So, yeah. yeah.
0: No, I mean, I, we've, we've mentioned it briefly before, but it is important to keep in mind that this is a very common situation for executives to be in in companies when they're let go. And it's simply a matter of negotiation uh, between the dollar value that's remaining on their contract and then, you know, zero, right, you know, in order to leave by mutual agreement. The difference here, of course, being that, you know, we have this massive fan base of followers here, whereas, you know, a company that makes widgets you know, you don't have that same kind of emotional investment of a third party. So it is different. Um, and there is one, uh, the, the thing I'd be really fascinated to find out, and I'm sure we'll never find out, is whether or not there's something uh, akin to a clawback provision of whether or not if all these people get employed right away, you know, does any of it get clawed back to the club uh, or not? My guess is that it was a free and clear uh, negotiation break. I'm sure they just terminated it clean just because there's a year left in it. Um, Okay, so what we're going to do now is the (laughs) I I love, by the way, Brian's comments Sorry, just made me laugh here about, you know, if you just repeatedly offer a little bit less than their value and, you know, football manager and FIFA, you get it eventually. Right. Um, Exactly. No, I think I think you understand where I'm coming from, that the real life transfers are just unbelievably complicated and they blow up for reasons that, you know, are are baffling Um, anyway. Long story made short, we are well over an hour here. I'm going to pin it towards a wrap. What I'm going to push it towards, actually, and what I'm going to leave us on is I want to hear from both of you what you think will become of the quakes in the near future and what you think will become of Matias Almeida in the near future, how you see both of their trajectories going. Uh, and can tell if we could start with you.
1: Yeah, sure. So, well, firstly, I just wanted to say a little bit looking retrospectively, just Looking at kind of Matias's tenure, um, I think we discussed this a bit earlier. But Matias, the man, is always going to be someone that uh, we really appreciate here, and we really appreciate what he did for the club. Uh, You know, turning the the locker room around from 2018, where which was really you know a a miserable year on the pitch and maybe even the locker room as well. So um, I think going from that to what happened in 2019, uh, you know, there was an article a while back. uh, Tommy Thompson talked about you know, how Matias would, you know, just sit on the ball in, in the locker room and, and tell stories for hours and hours. And, and, and the players would listen, and they would listen intently uh, because they were so uh, interested in, the, in this man's life. And, you know, he's such a personable and likable uh, figure. Um, and I think that's really impressive what he was able to do in that sense. And, and what he's done in the past, you know, I think in his biography, he talks very candidly about uh, his, you know, depression and alcoholism. And, and you know, this is the kind of guy that Matias is. He's an honest man, isn't afraid to show you uh, how he feels or, or what he feels. So I think we'll always appreciate that here in San Jose. We'll, we'll miss those celebrations on the touchline. Um, but looking forward, uh, I think I, I tweeted this out earlier today. Where, where I want to see Matias Almeida is I want to see him at a World Cup. Um, I want to see him managing a team in this tournament style where he has been so uh, successful repeatedly in the past, you know, the MLS is back tournament. uh, You could say the quakes that were, they were relatively successful despite, you know, some ups and downs, even within that tournament, they, they bounced back, you know, against Vancouver, they bounced back, they came back, they won in in such a crazy fashion in that match. And they kind of carried that throughout the tournament uh, until they were finally eliminated by uh, their, uh, their kryptonite uh, Minnesota United and Adrian Heath. But, um that was uh, a special tournament for them but even going back to chivas uh league mx is is a perfect kind of situation for him where a a lot of the teams make the playoffs and chivas was able to do a lot with that as well so i want to see Matias almeida in a world cup uh on the sidelines who is that going to be with i know chile has been thrown around i know ecuador has been thrown around in -hmm. terms of the rumor mill um but that's where i want to see Matias. uh I don't want to see him in MLS. I don't want to see him on the other side of the the touchline. That's for sure. Um, I think that would be a really exciting place for him to end up uh, for us as the fans in terms of the quakes. I think uh, like I mentioned earlier, this kind of having a a broader strategy and having a a general kind of understanding of what the club wants to do in in every sense, uh, in every area of the club's operations, that's going to be really exciting. And I think, they're well on their way towards that. Uh, Like I said earlier, there's a lot of key indicators that uh, would point to the idea that, you know, we're on the right path now. Um, We're on the right path to establishing an identity that works for us. um, And, you know, works for this ownership group. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think we'll have that opportunity tomorrow to, to get a little preview of that uh, and and going into the rest of the season as well. Jamin Moore. Uh, what do you expect to see from Matias? What do you expect to see in San Jose?
0: Well, I, I hope he doesn't go back to Chivas. I, I agree with Anay. The, the thing that
2: I really want to see is that tournament, Matias. I wrote about at the beginning of the year, and uh, you know the same thing kind of applies actually for his, his mentor, Marcelo Bielsa. They're both excellent tournament coaches, and when it comes to long regular seasons, they've shown that it's hard to get a team to keep up these tactics And not get ripped apart defensively so um but for a short-term window when a team is not playing a team like this all the time when there's maybe a little bit less tape when most of your focus goes into planning and training and everything and then you come and you play just two or three games in quick bursts and then you go away i think it works much better and Matias almeida's two copa mx titles prove that right the his ability to uh, get teams to focus in playoffs. And when he won CONCACAF champions league, which again is another tournament. Um, and so for me, I want to see tournament Matias. Uh, I'm really hopeful that he will hold on for the Chile job and not give in and go back to Chivas. That's just me. But, uh, you know, I want to see him at, at the national team level. I want him, you know, to kind of prove that, you know, he is who he says he is. Um, and, uh, and to, to, uh, chile be able to make the world cup the next time around and hopefully we'll get to see some great come ball action and maybe the whole copa america thing you know we'll be able to uh, watch mexico iron for the world cup <laughs> yeah we'll see <laughs> uh i've heard the mexican federation just doesn't like him at all so there's that um in terms of the quakes look you know there's i i look at i look at soccer i can't help it as an analyst look at soccer as a math problem sometimes and the quakes have been on the wrong side of a math problem for going on three and a half years now. Uh, And that math problem has been that it just doesn't work out that they've been able to defensively stop more goals, expected goals, shots, shots on target, literally any measurement you wanna put at, they've not been able to stop more than they've been able to create in the attacking side. And they don't have a bad attack. I think they are in the top three in the West right now in terms of of goals and expected goals. So despite the fact that some of that hasn't been an open play, you know, they're creating right now and they have continued to create under Matias for most of his tenure, the goal side of the equation was fine. It wasn't great, but it was fine. And it was good enough to be a playoff team in MLS, but the defensive side of the equation never worked. And for me, literally bringing that structure and that spine back and making the defensive side of the equation balance back the other direction. I think this team at least can win as much as it loses the rest of the way that might not make playoffs. They're just going to get too far behind in terms of the playoff math at this point. And, uh, you know, I probably need to write a bit about that and help educate people on what the playoff math looks like, but it's just a huge hill to climb. You're talking like a 1.5, 1.6 points per game, the rest of the way, in order to be able to get back to playoffs now that there's this many teams in the West. So for me, Colin, it's, let's get the math equation fixed. Let's have it balance a bit better. And I think this team will kind of probably head back toward the mid table, which is probably where it ought to be given where it's at uh, from a roster perspective and, and uh, some of the other uh, factors around the team right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) for my last thoughts, I'll answer the same questions. Alex Morgan was not happy with me the other day when I expressed my kind of level, of profound pessimism about this season. But Jamin, it is just a math problem. You know, averaging 1.5, 1.6 points per game the rest of the way is a lot higher uh, than you know, Matias. career average is 1.3, and that includes his River Plate and his Banfield times if you only take the first division matches. So and that's kind of a right about in the middle kind of average amount. you're cooking you know you're you're actually playing really well it's possible that they could do this for the next 80 percent of the season but it is it is a pretty tough ask they're already in a very deep hole uh in a very strong conference so what i'm looking for is bang average four two three one you know give me the the bog standard version of it solidify do the normal stuff right and let the kids play let them play and fail let them play and fail and lose Uh, I'm actually I prefer that. And I think a lot of fans are like me. I loved watching Reno for all these years because I loved watching the development of those younger players. Um, It's fun to watch teams that are kind of on the ascendancy, even if they're not good yet. You know, the the Golden State Warriors last uh, two years were not good. Uh, but I actually, it's not this season, I'm talking about the two seasons that preceded it, they were not good, uh, but it, there was a lot of pleasure for me in watching it and the way that they developed and gelled uh, that kind of next generation of of the team, the younger players and role players. I'm hoping for the same thing here. Um, for Matias, I want the same thing you guys do. I think he's going to be awesome in national management. Um, I think that it suits him you know, to a T. Uh, national teams are infamously hard to get together because of club rivalries between them. Who better to create a sense of one, oneness and unity than Matias Almeida? And in terms of the tactical stuff, I completely agree with Jamal, uh, Jamin. There's, you know, look, Adrian Heath owns Matias Almeida because he was able to drill and prep his guys for that and, and you know, implement sophisticated tactics there's really not much ability to do that in tournament football uh, or in those brief international windows. You know, Craig, Greg Burhalter is really like pushing the boundaries of how complicated you can put something on uh, to a team and still have it function. Matias has got the simplest instructions in the world. That's your man. Go mark him, press them hard, you know, win your battles. That's something that's going to work in tournament football. And Marcelo Bielsa himself proved it spent six years at Argentina, four years at Chile. They liked what he did at both spots. So anyway I really hope for that for him and I will say I just there's just this tiny bit of me that hopes that if he goes to a club uh, that he doesn't do particularly well there so it validates that my perspective that I've seen on the way so that's why I hope <laughs> that he goes to international football so we don't have to go into that spiteful element in, that's inside of me and we can just be the happy one all right uh, thank you guys uh, for showing up here tonight on an impromptu basis I should flag we have So we had a show on Saturday night. We have a show here on Monday night. We have a show tomorrow night as well, right after the uh, Open Cup game. I will not be on it, certainly, because it will be very late at night for me here on the East Coast. Um, But, you know, you're going to have Quakes Epicenter uh, hosting the aftershock for then. We, of course, have a Patreon quickstepcenter.com slash Patreon. Um, to clarify, as always, this is something we really only use for our expenses. I wish it was a source of salary, but I'm not quitting my day job anytime soon. $2 gets you early access to our written articles. Jamin and I have been, you know, riding up a storm. Uh, we have a bunch of other contributors beyond that, including an A here uh, that we, uh, I want you to also, uh, and for the $5, you can get into the Slack where we'd have like uh, discussions with our members, video content, a bunch of cool stuff that we pull from Scout. Um, the youtube channel like subscribe notify it's in the corner every youtube person that you've ever seen says the exact same thing please do uh log on uh thank you na thank you jamin thank you fans this has been a weird time to be alive um but i'm hopeful for the future so thanks everybody and we'll see you soon